I didn't realize that this one section was like 98% children. So like that, that's nuts. I just like looked up and I was like, either that or people saw the passage and they made a run for it right now. Either way is great. Um, Matthew chapter 5. We are still in the Sermon on the Mount. And today we are dealing with chapter 5 verses 27 through 30. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Let's pray. Father, help us to be faithful to the hearing of your word. Lord, help me to be faithful in the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray by the power of the Spirit we would have renewed minds that would understand, that you give us eyes to see, that we would not deflect or defend or manipulate what you are saying to us, but that we would receive it and know that it is for our good and that it leads in the way of life eternal. We need your wisdom. We need your eyes, your heart, and your mind. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just by way of recap, as Jesus goes into the Sermon on the Mount, he makes this statement that he says that the righteousness of the kingdom, basically, um, it exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he's talking about a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he goes into these six statements where he says, you have heard it said, but I say this. And remember what he's doing here, what's important is what he's doing here is he is confronting, he's not confronting the Old Testament. He's not confronting God's word. That's an important distinction. This has been used in the past for, for people who would say, well, I follow Jesus and I just kind of toss out the Old Testament. And that is not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So he doubles down on that and says like, no, no, this, I'm going to deepen it. But what he is confronting is their understanding of God's word. What they had heard said, what they had heard taught. And we acknowledged last week how this is a difficult thing for us to, to wrestle with. That for many of us, especially if we grew up in the church, we are often faced with ideas of, of things that we have always heard, we've always been taught. And it's difficult to be confronted sometimes by scripture. But if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, that is going to happen. Sometimes it happens because as preachers and as pastors, we just misunderstand scripture. It happens. There are things that I preached. If I went back and listened to sermons that I preached when I was 30, there are things that would make me cringe today. Now, by the grace of God, nothing that is core to the gospel or to like who God is and, and his nature and his goodness and how we are saved and those kinds of things. But there are definitely texts that I'm like, oh, I, I don't think I would emphasize that at this point. I don't know if that's really how I understand that. That 
happen. So sometimes the, the, sometimes what you always heard and what you heard maybe growing up, maybe that pastor who used to preach that would not say that anymore. But we also change. Our understanding grows as we mature and it deepens. And sometimes we don't hear exactly what is being preached. And so we get it in our heads that, oh, well, that means this. And we kind of run with that. It is, a, it is kind of entertaining most of the time. Um, and and there, it's happened a lot where people come up to me and they'll say, you know, it's, it's like you said in a sermon like, you know, a few weeks ago. And then you'll say something that I think I have never said that. And I would never say that. And sometimes I have to be like, it's kind of awkward. Where I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I didn't say that. And if I did, I definitely should not have said that. Um, other times it's really good. And I'm like, sure, yeah, I totally said that. Um, it just depends on how good it is. But I'll, like, the point being that there's all kinds of things that go into this idea of like, what have you heard said? And that's one of the reasons why we so value and cherish the Bible. Because it's something that we can keep coming back to and saying, well, but this is what God has said. And it doesn't change, even though our maturity changes, our understanding changes, our sanctification is happening, our life experiences happen, and all of those things can shape how we see and hear and understand things. But God's word in Scripture doesn't change. God doesn't change. He's saying the same thing today that he said in creation and has been saying throughout the history of the world. And that should build in us a great confidence that when Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I say this, that that isn't meant to shake anyone's confidence. It is meant to give us confidence where it should be put, which is in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit as he speaks through his word. And so Jesus deals with that, and we, we talked about how he dealt with anger and how the, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is, is about avoiding murder. It's about just, not, just avoiding this, um, this dark thing, this sinful action. And what we noticed was that the scribes and the Pharisees, their righteousness was about how we act. It's just about what's on the outside of the cup. But they were ignoring and neglecting the heart. And so what they found themselves in situations where many people who were following the law on the outside, they, they would not murder anyone, and so they saw themselves as righteous, but actually what was going on in their heart was that they were harboring anger towards their brother, that they would mock their brother, that they were indignant. And Jesus is saying, like, you are also guilty. You get the same punishment as the one who murders that these things are not, that this is the root, that this is, is out of the sinful heart that these actions even happen. And so don't ignore these, the sinful heart. And similarly this week, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is about the external showing of righteousness, and in this case, the avoidance of adultery. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And so we had a culture then of people who said, well, as long as I don't commit adultery, then I'm good. And they would claim that as righteousness. And meanwhile, in their hearts, they were cultivating all kinds of lust. And Jesus says something deeper. And really what we're going to look at is these two, these, the two parts of this passage are Jesus drawing that parallel, that connection of lust to adultery, and then 
the seriousness with which we should combat it. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know what's interesting about that phrasing? He doesn't say, well, but anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent is in danger of committing adultery. Right? Like that would make more sense to us, right? Like that would be very common sense and we would say, okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. I see like if you have lust in your heart, then you're in danger. You might go down that road. But Jesus says, if you have done that, you've already committed adultery. And like we said, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees would be to not be guilty of adultery. We'll reference this later, but the fascinating passage where Jesus um, comes upon the woman who is caught in adultery in, in John 8. And what does he address? He addresses, they're all looking at the adultery. They're all looking at her and saying, well, we haven't committed adultery, and so now we get to punish her because she has. And Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. He's going to go deeper. He's going to dig deeper and combat the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and say the kingdom, righteousness of the kingdom, is far beyond that. And anyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already sinned against her and has already broken the law of God. Now, anger and lust, these two kind of go together in a lot of ways, but unlike, unlike murder which we pretty much have the same feelings towards as they did then. So, so now we talked about last week of how like murder then is murder now. Like they would be talking about the same thing. They had the same feelings about it. It would have been very similar, but the same cannot be said for adultery. By comparison to that culture and how they viewed adultery, we are quite flippant towards it as a culture. Now, not necessarily the word, mind you, like adultery. Like if you went out on the street and you asked people, like, do you think adultery is, is wrong or if it's okay? Most people attached to that word would still say, well, I don't think that's right. They might temper it a little bit. But we use a lot of different words to kind of define the same thing. It's very common that it's been redefined in our culture at large in open relationships, in polyamory, in unbiblical divorce and remarriage. There's all of these things that are difficult. Like in our culture, it's almost a given. It's almost like not even noticed. We don't even bat an eye at it. I mean, many people in our culture argue that humans were not created for monogamous relationships at all, but even in the church, we have a certain flippancy towards it. Now, let me say this. And you know, if you've been here for very long, like we're not, we're not afraid to talk about this stuff. If it's in scriptures, like we're going we're gonna to talk about it and want to deal with it. And I am well aware that the pain of adultery runs deep, even in our church. And so for many of you, this is not a hypothetical sermon about something that just is good to have in mind or maybe to deal with some things in your heart, but this can be a trigger for extreme pain. 
if you are in that situation, I want you to know that you are not alone. And our Jesus has good news for you. He is also not flippant. He is also not unaware of the pain that that has caused. So why, why would he draw this kind of parallel with this very painful thing with something that our culture lusts, that our culture just sees as like, well, it's just kind of a given. It's just normal. Well, it's important to mention that just like with anger, he's not saying that the earthly pain or the effects of these two things are equal. So he's not saying, just like he's not saying with anger and murder, he's not saying like if you get angry at somebody and yell at them, he's not sitting there going like, well, you just might as well have killed them because it's all the same. He's not saying that. And the same way it goes with lust and adultery. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is the judgment ultimately is the same. He's going after their, right, their interpretation of righteousness and he's showing them the righteousness of the kingdom. And the aim of Jesus is not here to heap shame on those who have committed adultery or to stand back and judge the world that sees it as no big deal. The aim is to say to those in the kingdom, if you let lust take hold of your heart, you are also guilty. Do not separate yourself from the world in this way and think that you are clear and you are good just because you don't cross that line. And though in the church we may not have become as flippant as a culture when it comes to adultery, adultery we, we have in many ways when it comes to lust. We often, like, we make jokes about it. We watch movies that encourage it. We listen to music with it. TV shows, even children's shows right now are ripe with it. And we tend to feel that as long as we don't act out on these things, then we're innocent. We tend to think that as long as we, as long as we just are able to kind of pretend that it's not an issue, then we're fine. We think that the problem is out there, but it is not. We think that we are innocent, but we are not. We often participate in the culture that knows that lust is a pathway to money and pleasure and identity, and all those paths lead to destruction and our response often is we either participate in it or we ignore it or we judge it. And none of those responses are kingdom responses. Obviously, the, the pornography industry is indicative of the lust in our culture. There's a lot of things I could say. I'm not going to go into great depth here, but I will say this. Did you know that the revenue of the pornography industry is more than the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball combined? I don't know about you, but every once in a while when I'm watching a game, I'll see a scroll on the bottom. So-and-so just signed a 10-year contract for $300 million. And I, like, I don't know what your world is like, but when I see that, like, that's monopoly money. Like, I don't understand what that even means. If you told me, like, hey, we're going to sign you to a 10-year contract and pay you $300 million, I'd be like, what? Like, I, I, I could not possibly conceive of how much money that is. And that is one player on one team in one league. And now take that and multiply it by three, and you still don't match the revenue of the pornography industry. 
And if you cover your ears and say like, well, I don't want to hear any of this, or you sit back smugly and pat yourself on the back for not participating, what Jesus is pointing out here is you are complicit. You are also guilty. We participate or we judge or we ignore. But the kingdom calls us to far more. Because like with anger, we are complicit in the acts that follow the evil and the darkness. And there is huge cost to not addressing this in our culture. I mean, lust in all of its forms, even the parts that seem innocent, seem, it's just, it's small. Like we talked about anger, it just sits there and it's small. And you say, well, it's not that bad because I didn't do this, this, or this. I didn't, I didn't go any, like, any further with that. I didn't, I didn't have that conversation. I didn't look at that thing. I didn't, like, I just, so I didn't do that thing. And so therefore it's fine. And what happens is that little seed just sits there and it gets fed and it grows And we try to pretend like it's not there. We try to maybe pass it off or say it's no big deal. Or we see it in our brothers or our sisters and we say, oh, yeah, it's not so, that's not that big of a deal. And we just let it sit there and it grows. And it destroys your heart. This is the cost of lust that goes unattended. It will destroy you. It will destroy your heart. The darkness is consuming. It desensitizes you. The bottom line is lust is dehumanizing. This is important. It's dehumanizing. The culture looks at it and says, like, well, it's just, this is human. No, it's not. It's not human. It's dehumanizing. That's why so much of the language around lust in our culture, like the pop language around it, is animal-like. It's many parallels to animals. Why? Because it is not human. And they both have that in common. Anger and lust have that in common. You think about blinded by blind rage. Why? Because we're not functioning as we are created to function. Blind, blinded by lust. Blinded by anger. Why, why do we say these things? It makes us less than who we were created to be. Less than human. And so it is destructive in that way. It dehumanizes us, which makes us dehumanize one another and keeps us from loving one another as ourselves. Right, do you see that connection? Like as I'm being dehumanized, I now dehumanize others and it keeps me from loving them. You devalue people. You see them then as objects to be used for my own gratification. That's the darkness and the evil of lust. It grows. And by the way, side note, being married does not make you immune to this at all. That's kind of an old idea. But it does not make you immune to this darkness. Husbands, if I could just say to you, your wives are not an object. Your wife is not an object. There's a pervasive culture here, I've noticed, that seems to think that as long as lust is aimed at your spouse, that it isn't lust and it isn't evil. It is. That is a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell, and it keeps you from loving your wife. 
the way God intended, the way that will bring life. So it destroys your heart, which dehumanizes you and keeps you from loving others well. And then it contributes then to greater darkness. So Jesus already said that we are meant to be salt and light, but when we let sin like this grow in us and in our, in our church family, in our own hearts, then we are contributing to the greater darkness that is in the world. We are not bringing light into the world. We are spreading darkness. Lust is this hunger, and there are plenty of people out there who will make a lot of money off of offering to fill this hunger. They don't care what they show. They just want to make money. They care that you pay attention. And they know what our culture pays attention to. Advertisements, shows, and yes, pornography, it all just is evidence of what is happening in our culture and in our hearts. It destroys lives. And not just the life of the person participating and not even just the people that are in their immediate circle. Like it destroys marriages and it destroys family relationships, but it also destroys bigger things in the culture. It's serious. It is a consuming fire of sexual assaults and human trafficking and lifelong trauma. And it starts in just the dark corners of our heart. And Jesus says, it's, you're guilty of that. You think this is what you're trying to avoid? This is what's happening in your heart. There are more people trapped in slavery today than any other point in human history. Think about that. It always baffles me when secular humanists talk about how we evolve as a society and how much more moral we are and we judge people in the past and we have 50 million people estimated in slavery and many of them in sexual human trafficking and most of them children and we judge past cultures and histories and talk about our moral high ground we participate or we judge or we ignore and in all ways we are complicit it is painful if you've ever talked to a survivor of human trafficking you will know that is coming face to face with pure evil and all of it is rooted in lust. That's why it's a big deal. And one of the things Jesus is doing is calling out these things for what they are. By comparing anger with murder, he's exposing the darkness of anger. Not saying like, hey, it's no big deal. He's exposing the darkness of it. It's a shock statement that is meant to say, oh, that's really dark. And by connecting lust with adultery for them would have been shocking and exposes the darkness of lust. But I need to make it clear because we are in a different culture now saying this is what he, he very well could have said that you've heard it said, like don't, don't traffic humans. Don't sell children into prostitution. That's the kind of statement that would have been equivocal to, the, to what, he, what people were hearing in that day. And then he would say, but you've heard it said that, but I say to you, anyone, who's had lustful intent or participated in that, is guilty. He's exposing the darkness of it. It is not innocent. 
Therefore, that's why he says these harsh things in verse 29. I mean, are you kidding me? You're talking about just lust and all of a sudden he breaks into, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. By the way, can we all just acknowledge that I wasn't just being a big baby when I said Jeff gets to preach about puppies and rainbows? Like, come on! But you know, like, this is because I love you. And I, I trust God's word, and I trust Jesus, and I know that he has good news for us, and he has a better way, and I know that his nature is not that to just heap shame on us, but to flood us with light so that we can show us the way to abundant life. And that's what he's going to do. Even when he's talking about gouging out your right eye and throwing it away, his point here is don't let up. He's already said, like, this is how important it is. This is how critical it is. This is how dangerous it is. Don't you see how much destruction this causes? Don't you see what the lie is here? Like, so if, if anything, it's so serious that if, you, if anything in you leads towards that, cut it off and throw it away. Like, it's better to give it all up than to be led down this path of destruction. Don't let up. Just like with anger, we can't let lust take root in our hearts. Don't excuse it. Don't justify it. Don't make peace with it. It is to be killed and destroyed. We have to fight against it. And it starts in here in our hearts. So what often happens is we spend all of our time complaining about movies and TV shows and Super Bowl halftime shows and commercials. And we completely ignore our own hearts. But if we want to see change out there, it always starts in here. And if we want to see change in here, it always starts in here. We have to fight against it. Because then we'll be able to see clearly to help our brother. So how do we fight it? How do we do this? First, we need to see it as our problem and repent over the part we have played. So participation judgment and self-righteousness or ignoring we have to own our part and see it as our problem this is not just their problem or that person's problem it's our problem as a family we find ourselves either pouring more gasoline on the fire or pretending it doesn't exist or sitting back in self-righteous judgment watching it burn while we hold the fire extinguisher Paul addresses a little bit of this in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. But this is the part. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Like they had this arrogance about them. Either arrogance, some people say that it was arrogance that they were so accepting of that and they were so, like they were so progressive that look at how accepting we are or arrogance and that they didn't think things like that. They were ignoring that while they were saying, no, 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 but we do these things really well and so we are arrogant and self-righteous. And he's like, look, this is happening among you and you're not doing anything about it. It's heavy. He says, I love that phrase. He said, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? That right there, just side note, would help the church in so many areas. 
any time, any cultural sin going on, anything going on in other people's lives, anything, like if we could just be consciously thinking, I don't want to be arrogant, ought I not rather mourn and grieve? We should grieve over what we see in our culture. Let me ask you, when you drive down Highway 41, past a particular building, what is in your heart? Is it lust? Then grieve and repent. Is it self-righteous indignation? Grieve and repent. Is it just total apathy? Grieve and repent. Grieve and repent at your part in cultivating a culture where that exists. Grieve that there are daughters of the king, women made in the image of God, being used by a culture of lust. I mean, what, what would it look like if we had a group of women who said, I'm not going to ignore it. And we had a group of women who said, I'm going to go there and I'm going to love the women in that club and I'm going to minister to them and share the gospel with them. They are image bearers of our God. What would that look like? And the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees would say, don't go into the club. Don't watch that thing. But the righteousness of the kingdom goes much, much deeper. And the answer is not to look with disgust and judgment toward the lust in our culture, but rather it is to grieve and repent and it is to call out of darkness, not with arrogance, but in brokenheartedness, in our grief, to call out. And it is to tell people about the greater treasure, to tell them you're more than a sexual being. You're more than what the world says. And beseeching people to turn to the greater treasure. So we have to take responsibility and say, this is our problem. And for those who are entrapped right now in this battle against lust, step into the light. If you find yourself in a place where you say, no, my, my sin in this has been judgment or ignoring or apathy, and I'm going to repent of that, and then I'm going to, I'm going to call people in the light, I'm going to not be afraid to talk about that, I'm not going to be an unsafe place for people to talk about that, but I'm going to, I'm going to step into that however God is calling me to, and I'm going to call them out into the light. If you have been contributing to this in your participation, then the response is grieve and repent and step into the light. Don't remain in the darkness. You are not alone. If you want the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, then by all means, create for yourself your own law that you can justify yourself in and through. Allow certain levels of lust, draw your own lines and remain in the darkness. But if you want the righteousness of the kingdom, then come to the king. He knows, he sees, and he loves you. He doesn't wait for you to change before he loves you. Romans 5.8 5, says that God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means, and we've done this before, but if you picture your darkest moment, the part where you 
are filled with the most self-loathing, the part that you hated yourself the most, the part that is so dark that you say, if anybody knew that about me, it would change everything about how they view it. It's the part that fills you with the most regret, the most pain, and you can't believe that you were ever responsible for that. In that moment, Jesus Christ looks at you and says, I love you. I'm dying for you. In that moment. Not just in this moment where you took a shower and got dressed and came to work, or came to church, which feels like work sometimes. Especially when you're bringing children with you. It's in the moment that you're in your darkest point where you say, I am unlovable, I am disgusting, I am beyond help. And Jesus Christ draws near to the brokenhearted. And he says, I am with you right now. Though everyone else Humans, broken humans, might judge and might withdraw in self-righteousness. Jesus Christ, the only one who is righteous, draws near and is with you. So step into the light. Don't ignore him. Don't push him off. Don't dive deeper into that darkness. And we are called to be the body of Christ. And so we want to be an extension of that. We want to help you. Listen, there is nothing you can confess to the elders of the church that would bring their judgment. Nothing. I am confident in that. There's nothing that you could confess to us that would make us love you any less or less willing to fight alongside of you. Nothing. And what do you have to lose anyway? Your reputation? Better to cut it off and throw it away. Your status and the belief, the, the perception that you like, have everything together, cut it off, throw it away. Trust me, in my role, I have heard it all. And I mean, hey, I'll even make you this deal. If you tell me something I haven't heard, I'll get you a prize. You're in a prize. Like I'll buy you a pizza or something. And you can feel like, you know, vindicated. There's something new. But I'm, I'm telling you, over the course of years of ministry, there is no depth to the darkness that has been confessed. And every time, I mean, I'm saying things that they don't even put in movies because it's just way too far. And every time I have seen the gospel of Jesus Christ just crush that shame and darkness and flood it with light. Because where sin is, grace abounds even more. So don't hide. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. The enemy wants to tell you that you are alone, to tell you that you are beyond love, beyond help, beyond grace, and those are all lies. They are lies. They are lies. And we want to be a church that realizes that when we ignore the problem or act in self-righteous judgment, that we keep people in the dark. We confirm to them over and over again yeah, if you do admit this, I'll judge you too. As we make flippant jokes, as we ignore things, it's not a problem. As we just 
pat ourselves on the back that we're not like the world. In all of those ways, you may be saying that near a person who is battling this at a deep, dark level and the enemy is telling him or her, they're not gonna accept you, they will judge you. And we unwittingly participate in that. But rather, if we grieve and repent, then we create and cultivate a culture where people can step out into the light And then we can be with Jesus in John 8 where he says to them, after they all leave and they all walk away, Jesus says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. My prayer is that we become a church where we could say, there's no one to condemn you. Step into the light and pursue Jesus. And you may say, well, Jesus tells him to go and sin no more. Yes, he tells her to do that. But not as a show, but for her own good. And we will do the same for your good. You don't step into the light so you can be like, oh, so glad I got that out of my chest. And then go back into the darkness. We're calling you to walk into the light and find healing and hope and life and victory. By the way, just so we're all aware, this doesn't just have to do with lust and anger. All of this really is just disordered desires. We think that we are going to get something by pursuing something. The lie of the enemy is, oh, you want this thing? The best way to get it is apart from God. At its core, that is what our desires lead us into. It is the lie that if you want what if you want to get what you really want what you really deserve what will really fulfill you then you'll have to do it apart from God but Jesus says that's the thief the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy but I came that they may have a life and have it abundantly we tend to take this idea of thinking that What Jesus offers is a life of just bland, religious, like don't do these things. And the world offers like abundant life. But Jesus says, no, it's the opposite. Even when we think we're pursuing good things, the idea that we would pursue it and get it in our own way apart from God is destructive. Think about the garden. Think about the the garden with Adam and Eve. What does Eve actually want? Does, Does Eve say, like, I want to rebel against God. God is unjust and unfair, and so I am going to take a stand right now and battle against this unjust God. No. She wanted to be like God. She wanted wisdom. Those are two of the things that we say. Be like Jesus. Like, be formed in the image of Christ. Like, we want to be formed. We want wisdom. We're supposed to pursue wisdom. The problem is, she did it her own way. And Genesis 3, 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
So she wanted wisdom. She wanted to be like God. And if the fruit looked good, this seemed reasonable to go about it in this way. So she ate. The problem with lust in all of its forms, whether it's sexual or over money or experiences or whatever the case is, the, the idea of like, I have to have this, I need to have this, and I don't trust God to deliver this for me, and so I'm going to go about it in my own way because I deserve this. The problem with that is it's never satisfied. And anytime we have a desire and go outside of God to fulfill it, it always leaves us empty and in darkness. And Jesus is offering to fulfill us and to call us out of the light. And we need to fight at a heart level all of those things, lust in all of its forms. And thanks be to God that he fights that fight. When Paul struggles with this type of thing in in Romans 7 where he talks about, like, I do the very thing that I hate. Like, I know what I want to do, but I just, I can't do that. I end up doing this thing over here. When he says that, he ends with this wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's who will deliver us. See, in Jesus, we have received the fulfillment of all of our desires. We are set free so that we can love him and love others. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he does the same thing for our desires. The thief comes to destroy and to steal and to kill. But Jesus came so we would have life and have it abundantly. He did not come so that we would be a group of religious people who don't have any fun and just judge everybody else and are miserable and don't desire anything living these bland lives is not what he came for quite the contrary he offers us eternal treasures abundant life joy that is beyond comprehension and we end up finding those of us who have experienced that find that our old desires for old worldly things are not too strong but as c.s lewis would say they're too weak God says, you're just fiddling around with all this stuff. I have much greater things for you. So if you are in a pattern of disordered desires, whatever that is, you find yourself lusting after something, whatever it is, hear the good news. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He did not come to shame you for doing bad things and telling you, Hey, why can't you be like the scribes and the Pharisees who don't do those bad things? Instead, he came with a righteousness that far exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Not as a bar to attain, but as a promise to be fulfilled in us. To be free and to live like that. So turn to him and repent, and we want to help you. Let us walk with you. If you are sitting here this morning and you're saying, I need help. I want to be set free. Then I'm going to ask after the service, talk to me. Grab one of us. Grab me. Grab Christoph. Grab someone sitting near you. Here's what I love about this church. Right now, if you are in that situation, you could reach out your hand and find someone who would offer you the gift of life and can help you. I'm not even exaggerating right now, guys. This fills me with so much joy. I'm looking around the room right now Okay, there may be one row. Just kidding. It was a joke. I'm looking around this room right now, and if you were in that darkness, I'm telling you right now, you could turn around 360 degrees and you would find someone who 
will love you and can pray with you or connect you with someone who can help. Don't let that go by. Let us, as a church, grieve over the brokenness in the culture and how it brings destruction in people's lives. Let us repent of our part in it and let us receive and walk in abundant life that Christ offers. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us these things to talk about, that we even have your word, that we're not left to just have these philosophies about how these things work and just try to make up these things as we go along, but that you have revealed yourself, your nature, your work in your word, in the scriptures, but also in flesh as the word became flesh and walked among us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a profound gift for us. Lord, right now I pray for everyone in this room that we would be brought to a place of grief and repentance. Lord, we see the destruction of lust in our culture. We see how it costs people their marriages and their lives and their innocence. But Lord, we know that the innocence does not come from us. It is in you and that sin invades every area of our hearts and in our lives. And so we are complicit in it. Forgive us, Father, for how we have participated in it. Forgive us, Father, for how we have lusted after things and taken them and in so doing dehumanized ourselves and dehumanized other people. We've dehumanized people who are created in your image. Father, forgive us for that. Forgive us, Father, for self-righteously sitting back and judging as people are being destroyed by the sin to sit back and just say, well, I'm so thankful, Lord, that I'm not a sinner like them. Lord, let us repent of that attitude and that heart. Lord, forgive us for how we have ignored or hidden our heads in the sand and skipped past the warning signs, and been unable to face it in our own households, in our own churches, in our own communities, and wanted to pretend that this doesn't exist. Lord, forgive us for that. And so doing, ignoring what is destroying so many. Lord, help us to love people who are enslaved by this. Whatever the form it takes, let us shower with mercy and grace and calling out into the light. Let us not settle and feed sin and darkness and let it just kind of exist because it's just easier to not deal with it as long as we can keep it contained. But rather, Lord, let us flood it with light and pull it out. And Lord, let us kill sin in all of its forms so that we can walk more abundantly with you. We can abide in you. We can experience more of the abundant life that you are offering to us. We can experience more of that joy knowing that experiencing more of that from you will free us to love others and to have compassion. Help us, Lord, to know what to do in our communities to address these things and to guard the hearts of our culture and to be agents of change, to be salt and light. 
pray all of this in Jesus' name and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.